And now we're going to uh, turn to the Bhagavad Gita, now that we've opened up all the channels. Because if uh, all else fails, chant Hare Krishna, and hint, everything else will fail. So don't be alarmed. <laughs> so this is something uh, we'll hear now from the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita in which there's a very important conversation going on in which we get to listen in between Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who just happens to be the chariot driver of Arjuna, the greatest warrior of the time, who entered into a battle, was about to, and then lost his bearings and needed guidance. And this uh, starts with Arjuna asking Krishna, his teacher, about how one can observe in oneself or others a gradual increase in spiritual advancement. So what are the symptoms? They, they should be verifiable, and they should be universal as well, because there's only one ultimate source, and if one is practicing any kind of spiritual system or a discipline that is effective, then we should be able to say, what are the symptoms of that? So that's where this discussion starts. And in it, Arjuna asks the question uh, at 2.54, right? Yes. He says, O Krishna, what are the symptoms of one whose consciousness is thus merged in transcendence? How does he speak and what is his language? How does he sit and how does he walk? And in his commentary, called the purport to this verse, Prabhupada, again, our founder, who gave us the books through which to guide this organization, said, as there are symptoms for each and every man, in terms of his particular situation, similarly, one who is Krishna conscious has his particular nature, talking, walking, thinking, feeling, etc. As a rich man has his symptoms by which he is known as a rich man, as a diseased man is, has his symptoms by which he is known to be known as diseased, or as a learned man has his symptoms. So a man is in transcendental consciousness of Krishna has specific symptoms in various dealings. One can know his specific symptoms from the Bhagavad Gita. Most important is how the man in Krishna consciousness speaks, for speech is the most important quality of any man. It is said, therefore, that a fool is undiscovered as long as he does not speak, and certainly a well-dressed fool cannot be identified unless he speaks. But as soon as he speaks, he reveals himself at once. The immediate symptoms of a Krishna conscious man is that he speaks only of Krishna and of matters relating to him. Other symptoms then automatically follow as stated below. So um, if you go back to the Zoom, I'd appreciate it because there's people, devotees on there, and it's when we can't see them, it makes it, puts me in anxiety. Thank you. So in this, um, Right? Better connection. Just knowing they're back there and then I can't see them, it makes me wonder how they are. So 
there's a question that Arjuna asks, what are the symptoms of somebody who is fixed in consciousness? So the terminology there is stita pragya. And that means, stita means that they're stable. They can, they're steady, they can stand somewhere. And then he asks, how does he sit, how does he walk, how does he speak? And so these are general terms about sitting and walking. It doesn't mean exactly how you sit in a chair or on the floor, but it means really how, how it is that you're situated in life in general. And there are various symptoms of somebody who's situated in transcendental consciousness. Their lifestyle is different. And also, when one wants to become spiritually advanced and be in the practice, then there's a way of adjusting one's lifestyle so that one gradually uh, begins to mold one's consciousness in that direction also. So this is an important point. Those who are interested in spiritual life are gravitate towards an atmosphere in which they can stay close to Krishna. That's why one of the purposes of ISKCON was to create an environment where people could come together and be close to Krishna. And those who are advancing in spiritual practice start to, uh, well, plan their lives around being in places where they can be closer to those who are practicing Krishna consciousness. And they also reorganize their homes. Not a bad idea anyway. I once read in Reader's Digest about 30 years ago that uh, it was an article about relationships and it said if you want to improve your relationship at home you can rearrange the furniture. <laughs> you can try it if you need it. Uh, <laughs> so there's a way in which uh, if you want to be Krishna conscious you can rearrange the furniture. I know a lot of Krishna conscious devotees, thankfully, who when looking for a place to live uh, and they're examining houses or apartments or vans, I don't know, it depends where you live. Uh, they're looking to see where will we put Krishna here. So that means in every house there's a way that there's a special room or a place where people either keep a picture of Krishna or a little what's called a murti, the form, carved form of the Lord. And that it's their sacred place, even if it's tiny. Sometimes I've seen really beautiful little spaces in closets. You know, it's the only place. It's a studio. And, and okay, this closet's for Krishna. And they make it really nice. So you open the door. It's like, hey, Krishna's in here. And also, uh, devotees like to keep uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam in their house. Last night, I had the fortune of being on a, a, a program in Mayapur with His Holiness Chai Pataka Maharaj, and he was talking about how when you put the, these sacred literatures in your house, especially the Srimad Bhagavatam, then your whole house becomes transcendentalized. It becomes a, a, a worshipable place. And if you don't have any of those things, then it's really easy to gravitate towards other things, right? Like what would those be? Like distraction. Huh? Television is like a black hole. You turn it on and you just you go down the hole. You come back out 48 years later. And it's like, what happened? <laughs> I got swallowed up. I, came, I went down the hole and, it, and I came back later. It's like, what year is it now? As a, it, could be, it can be dangerous. Not that it can't be also 
utilized. Uh, anything we, uh, can be used for uh, thinking of Krishna and practicing Krishna consciousness, including a television or anything else. But um, one of the ways in which uh, those who are in spiritual consciousness are situated is in the, how they keep their homes. And also, there's a uh, lot of direction in the Bhagavad Gita and elsewhere that one should live in uh, cleanliness. So keeping the home clean and, and without a lot of clutter. Just, I was surprised today how many... Uh, I just recently decluttered my whole room, got everything the way I need it, and... Uh, then, a few days later, it's not where I need it. And it's, uh, there's a lot of extra stuff. Does that happen to anybody else? Or is it just me? Yeah, things sneak in every, every door, window, and come in there. And like, where'd that come from? Now, where's it going to live? And so forth. And do I actually need it? So that's a constant struggle. Uh, or it's, it's a part of the discipline, actually, to live in an orderly environment. Because... If you live in chaos, which means you have a lot of things out of place that you don't need and so forth, it's, it's really easy to get distracted. So how does one sit? Uh, one who's situated in, in the spiritual practice is somebody who uh, trends towards living in a, in a way and in a place that is conducive to the spiritual practice. So that's something you can look into. And... And it's worth the trouble to be clean. It takes a lot of work. You constantly have to clean things and start over every day, actually, if you really want to be clean, at least do some, some simple cleaning. Then, how does one walk? If you think about it, where, where am I walking anyway? And we can include driving on four wheels or more. I won't discriminate against truck drivers. If you drive a big truck and you have more wheels, where are you going and why? Where are you going and why? That's indicative of our consciousness because we can ambulate, most of us, and means we can move towards certain destinations in life and one might stop and ask oneself, well, where am I going right now? And why am I going there? What, what am I going to do when I get there? And that's also indicative of our level of consciousness. So a person who is in spiritual consciousness will be wary and careful about where he or she is going. Because what are you going to do when you get there? What's the purpose of going there? And once I get there, is it going to help me? So then the third one, which Prabhupada mentions in his purport is the most important and indicative of one's level of consciousness is how he or she speaks. And when somebody is fixed in consciousness, that person is careful about what he or she says and thinks about whether it's going to be beneficial and whether it's truthful and whether it actually helps my cause and my practice. So there is a way of speaking that isn't helpful for instance, talking about things that are not important or not true or just blatantly unkind. And I found a rule. 
that helps me when I think about it is to not say everything that's on my mind. Because my mind oftentimes brings up things and says, hey, how about this? You want to say that? And then I'll just say, well, I'm, um, I'm cutting back. And I'm, not, I'm cutting back by 20%. 20% fewer things I say that are on my mind than I did yesterday. And then it's like, okay, you don't have to say that. And you know what I found? Is that it saves a lot of trouble. Because there's a lot of things that I can bring up than then just get amplified into the environment. Once I went to a retreat, and for one of the days of the retreat, there was no talking. Just go, oh my God. And that's what everyone said, because on the way to the retreat, everyone was saying, well, we're here for three days, and you know, the one thing I'm afraid of is that one day when there's no talking. <laughs> and the, just the, the prospect of having one day with no talking can help us to realize how much we do talk. And then one might uh, go through a day like that and come out on the other side, that is a day of no talking, and then realize, well, oh, that was actually a little easier. In fact, one of the participants in the retreat said, you know, all the time I'm meeting people as I walk around and they're saying things to me, and then I have to think. It's an elaborate thought process. What should I say and how should I say it? And that reverberates throughout my life. Now, I'm not indicating don't talk. But I am saying that if we're observant about the way we talk, and we're careful to be disciplined in our speech, then we'll notice how much the mind brings up that isn't worth speaking. The old saying, he had nothing to say, and then he said it. And so that uh, starts a whole process which uh, entangles us more and more in the world. Anavriti Shabdat means that the world and my consciousness can be purified through sound vibration. So the bhakti process actually starts with speech. And we tried out the chanting. And just by uh, chanting every day, either in this kirtan style or practicing what is called japa, sitting and chanting oneself or pacing and chanting to oneself on beads or counting in another way, one will start to notice by, that, by generating that sound vibration, we start to experience steadiness in consciousness. So what does it mean? What are the next symptoms? So as Krishna goes further, he starts to talk about uh, the person who's come to steady consciousness and how he or she reacts to the world. And one of the first points he makes is they don't. They do, but they do in a very measured way. There, uh, there may be auspicious or inauspicious events that happen in their life, but they don't become disturbed by them. This is called a sthita dir muni. A, a muni, a great thinker, a yogi, a person who's controlled his or her mind. And shuba ashuba means sometimes uh, we get what's called auspicious news. Like some, like if you heard just now, you got a text and 
you're trying not to look at it because you're sitting in the class. But then you just glance at your eyes and it's one of your family members just wrote and said, you know, we just won the lottery. I don't know why that would happen because you don't gamble, I guess. But, you know, somebody says, guess what? We just, we just won the lottery and it's $50 million. So would you get up out of class? No, you wouldn't? Okay, good. You're a stita dear Mooney. <laughs> or if you, if you heard some very disturbing news, of course, something happened to someone, uh, would your minds become disturbed in that way also? So what Krishna says in this section about the symptoms of somebody who's a stita dear Mooney is that he or she, whether hearing really good news or bad news, news is news in the material world. It's all of this in the same category. It's the goings on of the interactions of the material elements. And ultimately they have nothing to do with me. This is actually the perspective of someone who's fixed in consciousness. And therefore such a person is not disturbed by the good news, the bad news. It's all in one category, breaking news, which breaks your concentration from Krishna consciousness. So um, this is a, the symptom of, of a stita di muni. Now, how does one attain that? Through the practice of bhakti yoga. Where is this stated? In the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is arguably the most important of all the books that we have for learning the process of bhakti yoga, it says, Vasudeve Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita Janya Yashu Vairagyam Jnanam Chayarahaitukam. This means that when you do the direct processes of devotional service, and one of them is chanting, and the other one is listening, these are activities that you can do uh, naturally. We already do them. We, we sing something, we say something or we listen to something. It's generally, these are the take up most of the time in each one of our days. And if you dedicate that process of hearing and then speaking to saying something transcendental and hearing something transcendental, you're doing a direct process of bhakti. And what happens from that, doing a direct connection with Krishna through the process of bhakti, then you get a natural sense of perspective through which you can give up bad habits. They don't stick to you anymore. Have you ever noticed how the bad habits can stick to you all of a sudden and you just can't shake them off? You try to get rid of them and then, or, you, or worse, you know they're there, but you don't want to get rid of them? Yeah? So if you chant, you get both things. You get this sense like, I don't want this anymore, and I'm going to get rid of it. And you also get the strength, the wherewithal to, to let it go, let it float off. And you don't have that burden anymore. Doesn't that sound good? And f one can see this for oneself. This is something where, where we can read from Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam and understand how we can observe ourselves and see, is this process working for me? It has to work. Because if it's just philosophy or 
we're just socializing and so forth, then you can join the Lions Club or the Rotary, for that matter. Uh, same result. But if you want actual self-realization, then you have to take up the direct processes of bhakti yoga so that you can feel for yourself that you're developing in these ways. You're becoming more detached from bad habits. Uh, you're more self-directing. And also, you're getting insight into who you are. Now, that's the next point I want to make before we break for some uh, reflections or questions. And that is the second benefit you get from doing the direct processes of devotional service, especially chanting Hare Krishna. And that is you get what's called gyan. So where does that come from? The nature of the self, or the atma, is that we are self-luminous. Now, you can bring up the example of a candle. Is a candle self-luminous? Is a candle flame, so I know you got me on that one. Is a candle flame self-luminous? Yes. Does a candle know that it's self-luminous? No, it doesn't. So the atma, or the self, illuminates, and it has potencies. It can expand itself outwardly, just like a magnet. A magnet has a force field through which you can attract things, and it also repel, depending on the charge. Is this correct, Balaram? Okay. Um, and similarly, the difference between us and a, and a candle flame is that we can... Uh, we are aware and can become aware of our own uh, nature. A candle can't. We can also uh, we expand our energy and project it in various ways. And so the reason that when I'm situated in a particular body that I, uh, I become attached to the body. Is anybody here attached to their body? Okay. Anybody didn't raise your hand see me afterwards because <laughs> I'd like to ask you for a donation. Uh, as oftentimes we actually hold on to everything in relationship to the body. And so the, the wisdom literature say that the reason that I'm attached to the body and I appreciate the body is because the atma or that self-illuminating particle of consciousness is pervading the body. And when I project myself into the body and then I observe it, there's a phenomena called ahankara, or false ego, in which I perceive that I am my body. And this is the source of all my difficulties here in the world. This is mentioned in the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is Bhayam Dvitiya Abhini Syad, that I become fully absorbed in all the activities of the body because I'm in the body, I'm illuminating the body by consciousness, I see that illumination, and then I take that illuminated entity that, that I'm in to be myself, including my mind and my intellect and so forth. And so when one chants Hare Krishna, one gets the wherewithal to see the difference between the body and the self-luminous self, or the atma. 
what's more, there's more, one can also perceive as an atma the source of one's consciousness. And this is important because we're not independent. We're not all pervading. We pervade within this body. Our consciousness pervades this body, but my consciousness doesn't pervade your bodies. I, I don't feel the kind of pain you're feeling from sitting on the, on the ground right now, maybe. Like, maybe you wish you were in a chair, and I can't perceive that. Sometimes I can, and then therefore I say, there's an empty chair over there, and hoping somebody gets the hint. You don't have to sit on the floor. But I can't really feel it. I can feel what I'm going through. But there is a, a, a consciousness, the original consciousness, which is called the complete whole, where Krishna personified a consciousness of Krishna that pervades everybody. It's universal intelligence that some people come to know. It's coming from a person. And that person pervades everything and is within our hearts. And therefore, when we chant Hare Krishna, we become aware not only of our identity beyond the body as self-luminous, and we also become aware of our source. And there's one more benefit of seeing yourself, and that is the, the self is naturally joyful. It's one of our natures. So if you're not joyful right now, snap out of it. <laughs> because uh, it means that our real identity is being covered. And actually, remarkably, there's mention in the ancient Upanishads about sleep and how that relates to this topic of self-realization. There are three general levels of consciousness that we go through in one day's cycle. And that is awakened consciousness, which is what we're in right now, I hope. Please say yes. And then there's sleep with dreams. And then there's sleep without dreams. This is very deep sleep. And one of the ways in which the bhakti philosophers point out that there's an individual entity is that when we go to, and that it's beyond the identity of this body, is that when we go to sleep and we enter into deep sleep without dreams, it's not that we're not conscious, it's just that we're conscious of nothing at that point. There's nothing to be conscious of because uh, the ego the false ego that I described that it connects us to this body dissolves in very deep sleep. And then we become aware in that state of our joyful, our joyful nature and also our proximity to our original conscious source that maintains us. And that, that's why when we come out of deep sleep, we're the ones that have a memory and we say, oh, I feel refreshed. I slept very deeply, even though we don't remember any dreams. This, uh, the bhakti philosophers point to, and they say, uh, this is an important, pivotal point in the philosophy to understand how we are individual units of consciousness. And so when you, at the end of a day, do you ever feel frustrated? How about in the middle of the day? Yeah. Hey, how about starting the day? <laughs> um, <laughs> So what do you do? Go to sleep, especially at the end of the day. Uh, because 
once you go into that very deep sleep, you come out refreshed. Why? Because you got a little ananda, a little sense of ananda, a, a, little, a little taste, enough to wet your beak. And then you come out, and you feel refreshed, and you start over with, with the endeavors. However, even as, when you're in awakened consciousness, if you chant Hare Krishna, you can experience that what's called ananda, or the joy of the self, even while you're awake. And that's why it's so nourishing if you sit and chant Hare Krishna at any time of the day. Afterwards, you go, okay, I feel a little better about myself, about the world. I see how things fit together. I understand that uh, what I thought was so bad is not so bad. Actually, you know, I'm not even such a bad person myself. And you can, you, you can move on. What to speak of if you start to develop that practice, then that sense of ananda or joy begins to emerge. You also start to, to have a, a persistent awareness of the source of your consciousness. And that source is called Krishna, and therefore this is called Krishna consciousness. So you could, anybody can do this. Now, I was reading in one Shastra, Shastra means an ancient scripture, and it mentioned one uh, um, famous uh, teacher was saying, so how hard is it to turn off the false ego? You know, the false ego is identifying with the body and says, woe is me, you know, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I, I don't like the way my hair looks, that's what, that's what my problem was, so. And then... <laughs> Yeah, you know, before I became a monk, it was, it was straight. And then when I grew my hair out once after 13 years, it came out curly. And I said, I don't like that. I'm going to cut it off again. So where was I? Uh, <laughs> I digress. Huh? Yeah, the false ego. What about the false ego? Yeah. So this ancient sage says, he said, how hard is it to turn off the false ego? Are you ready? He said, it's easier than plucking a flower. He said, no, it's easier than blinking your eyes. Try blinking your eyes once. Did you do it? Blink your eyes, yeah. He says, easier than that. So then he says, why don't you do it? It's like, I don't want to. And therefore, there's a principle in spiritual practice called simplicity. It means just do it. Knock it off. Just become Krishna conscious already. Uh, <laughs> I can't do it. How do I do that? Who is it? Just do it. You're an Atma. You're part and parcel of Krishna. Stop asking so many questions and just become Krishna conscious. And don't be so attached to stupid things. So that's uh, helpful advice, I think, I hope. <laughs> But the foundation of it all is to find a way in which to integrate the practice, the direct processes of, of bhakti into your life. And here, I'll leave it at this, chant Hare Krishna. If you try this mantra and you chant it privately, test it out on yourself and see how it goes, and try to remain steady in chanting. And also, 
arrange so that you can get together with groups of people who are serious about Krishna consciousness and chant with them. And you'll notice that your life improves. The second thing is read Bhagavad Gita. If you read the Bhagavad Gita every day, then your intelligence will become purified and then you'll think of good things to do and you'll make better decisions throughout the day and your life will start to go in an upward direction, upward towards the spiritual world, the dimension beyond just this boring material world. And third, uh, be careful what you eat. Because when you eat food that's cooked with love and devotion and first offered to Krishna before you eat it, then you purify your consciousness. And if you eat uh, junk, then your mind will be full of junk. Junk means uh, food cooked by people who are uh, not in good consciousness. Their consciousness goes into the cooking, into the food. And when you eat it, then you start feeling a jada buddhi. You get Your mind starts to feel like a rock. So eat food cooked by spiritually advanced people and that's offered first to Krishna. And if you do these three things, then uh, you'll become a stita pragna, fixed in consciousness, and you know it for yourself, and you'll be happy, and then you'll go around making other people happy, and your life will be complete success. Om Tat Sat. Thank you.